0: Hello, and welcome once again to our top-secret Missing Episodes bunker for the fifth instalment of the Doctor Who Missing Episodes podcast. I'm uh, afraid that once again Tim hasn't actually turned up at the agreed time. No doubt he'll be along soon, though, with some kind of thin but topical excuse, you know, like... Uh oh! <laughs> I don't know if you can hear that, listeners, but a strange robot has just sort of trundled in.
1: It's got a sort of... Uh,
0: Trundly movement. Hello, Trundly. Have you got any idea where Tim is? <laughs> Greetings, Paul.
1: Greetings,
2: Paul.
0: Greetings, Paul. I am speaking to you via this robot. Oh, for. Are you going to do the entire podcast remotely? Like, via the Trundly? Yes! But why? It's not this bunker security issue again. Fear not, this is merely one additional security measure.
3: I am in the inner vaults guarding the most precious episodes. Look at the inner vaults' porthole.
0: Oh yes. (laughs) Hello. Actually, now I think of it, I I did see a bunch of attractive young blonde women hanging around outside, all suspicious and menacing-like.
3: They are evil! They turned up with bribes for the station manager to randomly buy one missing episode. Who would have thought that such pretty little creatures could do such nasty things? I told them to bog off, built these robots, then sealed myself in the inner vaults. Breathing only this acetic acid off the rapidly vinegaring films.
0: Look, you don't need to worry about the station manager anymore. He died in the freak fire. Really? Really? Yeah, rumour is his last words as, as the flames rose higher were I don't know anything about missing episodes. I'm going to miss that lovely old crook. Yeah, me too. You're going to come out and record this podcast then? Give me a moment then. So, as I was saying, welcome to this episode five of the Doctor Who Missing Episodes podcast. This time we'll be talking about Galaxy 4, the first serial of season three, of which we have an almost complete third episode, Airlock, and a quarter of episode one, 400 Dawns.
3: Later on, we'll be joined by Jan Vincent Rudsky. <coughs> oh, sorry, we're doing normal now, aren't we? Um, Jan Vincent Ridsky, who not only preserved that quarter of episode one, but he also obtained all those one- or two-second little clips on 8mm film from the black-and-white era, including Stephen getting his haircut at the start <laughs> of 400 Dawns.
0: Yep, lovely stuff.
3: So, as normal, Paul, we'll have a look at the the background to the story and see what was going on behind the scenes at this start of season three and then we'll talk about the characterization and see what's going on with the the people in the serial and then we review it and then we'll have a chat with Jan later and then we'll talk about the missing episodes aspect so we've got a chock
0: full bumper episode we have for such another seeming little story as well indeedy Is there anything novel about this story, Tim? Well,
3: there is something novel in that in our little project, it's the first non-historical we're looking at.
0: Indeed. Because all those historicals were so harshly treated, it's such a run of bad luck, for whatever the reason was, that they they didn't survive. And without
3: revealing that I didn't enjoy this as much as (laughs) um, the other episodes, we've been spoiled rotten, haven't we, really? That's kind of where uh, where I was going with it as well, yeah. Yeah, in that we've missed some of the less dynamic stories that have been in the show so far. Dare I say, the Censorites, or perhaps the Web Planet, and so on. You know, the, the, the real slogs, and we've had excellent stories to watch. And so, without revealing my hand too early, there has been somewhat
0: of a drop-off in... Um, dynamism. <laughs> How very um, yes, euphemistic or in, or diplomatic, one or the other. <laughs> uh, but there's plenty of interesting
3: stuff to discuss. So this is Galaxy Four. It's written by William Ends. It's his only contribution to the Doctor Who canon apart from the choose-your own adventure style
0: 1980s. Is it Mission to Venus? So I gather in my researches for this, I discovered that it was partly based on uh, Mission to Venus on um, one of his rejected uh, pictures from the 60s called The ah. Imps. So um, bearing that in mind, I might actually go back and uh, to my shelf and check Mission to Venus, which I've had up there for 35 years and never read. <gasps> I know, I know. Evidently,
3: William M's submitted many storylines to to Doctor Who <laughs> into the 1980s, but all were rejected. Mm. Paul, you're, you've been around fandom
0: longer than I have,
3: but is it right he used to appear at conventions and be wheeled out as the
0: 1960s Doctor Who writer? Well, so I gather. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I wasn't at conventions back then, but I mean, um, w- in their review of this story, Robert Shearman and Toby Haydock both say separately that they saw him at conventions in the 80s. Rob remembers seeing him on a panel with the current production team. Uh, which didn't uh, deter him apparently from slagging off the current program, <laughs> while simultaneously moaning uh, <laughs> that they wouldn't give him any work. So he's <laughs> clearly a complicated man. Either, either yeah. that was completely given up by that point.
3: Yeah, he was quite uh, in 1965 when this was when this was written. He was quite a newish writer to my mind in that he'd only been writing since '63, having been a teacher before that and he did go on and write some write for as the, you know as they all did write for <laughs> some reputable tv shows didn't he red cap and hmm? public eye and callan
0: i i would have seen those episodes but i must admit none of them stuck in my mind as being particularly exceptional i think i'd have made a note you know and remembered hmm. they were william m's if they had been but on the other yeah. hand i don't remember them being particularly bad so what are we saying you you think he was probably probably went on to be a very workmanlike television writer? Perhaps. I don't know. If there are any
3: William M's fans out there, do feel free to get in touch with Paul. Yes, please. <laughs> this was a, a challenging time in terms of changing the production team. So, Verity Lambert is producer in name only, and John Wiles has come on to take over the production. Spooner is script editor in contract only and Tosh has well and truly taken over so Tosh didn't have anything to do with the time meddler he didn't need to but uh, he did get his teeth into this and when William M's wrote this he had the
0: Dravins as male yes
3: but it was evidently outgoing producer
0: Verity who suggested they should be female It's interesting, isn't it? Because Mm. um, right away, it makes one suspicious. Yeah. Because what, with The Best One in the World, you might consider one of the most interesting novel facets of the story. Mm. And it's not that novel. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, it's not even his. This would have just been, if some may say... (laughs) <laughs> it's so difficult to discuss this without playing our hand too early. Some may say this is a bog-standard Doctor Who's talking How much more bog-standard would it have been if this had been your standard race of bog-standard male aliens strutting about? Hmm. With their it, hands, on, uh, yeah. hands on their hips. And yeah. The change of sex, if nothing else, it, it gives it a
3: point of difference to the ordinary male characters in the Space Museum, doesn't
0: it? It does. There are many reasons why Verity might have done this. I don't, I think you'd have to be extremely generous to suggest it was any kind of feminist statement. It's extremely likely to have just been a a desperate attempt to liven up an otherwise rather standard script and indeed it could simply be a way of differentiating it from the story that came along two months before Hmm. to which otherwise it would have looked suspiciously similar.
3: So we mentioned John Wiles takes on the production and it's no secret that it, he had an unhappy <laughs> working relationship with William Hartnell. So I've and, heard. And <laughs> straight away there is tale that by the end of recording Galaxy 4 he'd already threatened to sack the
0: star of the show
3: over his inability to speak the lines.
0: Yeah, well, there you go. It's an interesting... <laughs> interesting. Um Method of method of getting people on board, isn't it? Yeah, and by the end of this season, he's he's
3: hardly putting William Hartnell, the titular star of the show, in
0: his own show. This is very unfair. I mean, I only saw one of his. I mean, he only cocks up one line this time. Yeah, <laughs> well deserved, undeserved piece.
3: <laughs> yeah. Which is, but he does the fluff with such authority, I've given it great thought about... Actually, is there some clever meaning there, but no, he just cocks it up, doesn't he? There is another one, but it was so lost in the telesnaps snaps I noticed that I didn't take note of it. But yeah, I mean, oh, well, maybe he needed a bit of a stern talking to, to get his dialogue in order, I don't know. But yeah, threatened to sack him, bless. Mervyn Pinfield, who was one of the originators of the show, he was involved from an early stage. He was commissioned to direct uh, Galaxy 4. And he did indeed do the 35mm stuff in the film studio. But then he was taken ill. And he retired there and then. And he was replaced by a creatively ambitious Derek Martinus. Mm who went on to do great things. So he did Mission to the Unknown, because it was coupled with this in the, as a, a, in the production. Um, Tenth Planet,
0: Evil of the Daleks, The Ice Warriors, and Spearhead from Space. Yeah, some good stuff in there. Is, was he also relatively new to television? Or He was.
3: Also behind the scenes, uh, Peter Purvis, Stephen, he was... Uh, he... <laughs> He's been known to voice his opinion once or twice that he was unhappy with Galaxy 4 hmm. because he was effectively replacing Barbara in a script that was written for the Ian Barbara team
0: hmm. and said he wasn't happy to be overpowered by a woman. He does say this, doesn't he? Hmm. What, do you, what do you think about that? I'm, I'm not at all sure. I mean, I think I understand and agree with his general sentiments, but I'm I think the details have been slightly lost over the years. Has he told that story too many times at conventions and just uh, elaborated it to the point where it bears no mm, relation to the truth? Growing in the telling. I mean, I was, for a start, I was waiting for the moment when he's overpowered by a woman, and I, I couldn't see it. And I, I can't really even bearing in mind we're just watching telesnaps. Well, sorry, <laughs> fake telesnaps. I still couldn't tell where it was supposed to have been. Throughout Vicky's
3: adventures, she has often been the audience identifier to hang around with the Doctor. Yeah. So it makes perfect sense for... Well, in episode one, it's the Doctor and Stephen who go off together. They yeah. then switch roles in, yeah. a, in episode two, and Stephen is then held captive by the drawing. And Vicky goes off to have a couple of episodes with the Doctor, which makes perfect sense to me. So in that aspect, had Ian and Barbara been there, I'm not sure I see how it would have made any difference because perhaps Ian and Barbara both would have stayed in the, with the drawing.
0: The point being that for, for Peter Purvis, who's a very nice man, <laughs> to say that, to assume that he got all of Barbara's lines, I think can doesn't make any logical sense. He would have got half of Ian's lines and half of Barbara's. Uh, yeah. I think, I think he was, thought he had a particularly passive role in this storyline particularly mm. compared to what he was expecting because he's still fairly fairly new here
3: yeah indeed and he, he'd come into the time meddler and was effectively the leading man I know we just debated whether he was the lead actor but he was effectively the leading man the man of action last time and very shortly with Hartnell being written out of the show effectively he becomes the leading man again so yeah, in his yeah. mind perhaps it's just the one where he isn't yep. Yep, the, the old man one of action out. sorry you Peter do you think Do you think Barbara was given the line when confronted with the Dravins, um, oh, hello, <laughs> and can I say, what a lovely surprise.
0: Well, if it was Ian, I think it is to said it with a bit of a twinkle and would have sounded quite as so salacious as it does in the finished product. Yeah.
3: yeah. Uh, the other aspects of male-to-female switch as suggested by um, Verity Lambert is, of course, they managed to get some publicity for the launch of the third season because yep. even though it was it yep. was produced at the shank of the second season it was always intended to be the the launch of the the third series so they they saw lots of publicity
0: because John Nathan
3: Turner didn't invent that that's true <laughs> that's true so for instance we saw headlines and this was months before it went out of course girls chase doctor who announced the daily express uh, which gave away the fact that the Dravins were th- the villains, <laughs> and we'll talk about this. That you only had to watch for 30 seconds to work this out for yourself, so it wasn't that much of a, an Earth Shock Cyberman giveaway. And Verity Lambert said it makes quite a change to have beautiful girls as Doctor Who's enemy. <laughs> <laughs> that was in the Express. Meet the Dravins was the title of the piece in the Daily Sketch with a photo of Lynn Ashley and William M's commented I wrote them as male Then somebody suggested it would be fun to turn them into lovely girls
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: lovely girls
3: <laughs> lovely girls lovely ladies uh, the writer's words also featured in the Daily Mail the Dravins are not interested in the opposite sex in fact they are created in test tubes the Daily Mirror, Paul yes. had killer blondes right typical Uh, left wing take on it (laughs) the sun (laughs) ran a similar drawing photo warning look out doctor who they're beautiful blonde and deadly so oh just one final one in the mail a race of sizzlers
0: None of these make any sense. Clearly tabloids weren't quite up there for a, a game back in the 60s. There's not enough not enough bad puns. I no. could have sworn I'd seen that uh, the publicity for the lovely sizzling killer ladies reached as far as the uh, as foreign climes. Mm. Is that not in your research? Uh,
3: when you say research, I've just got Pixley's um, book open here.
0: Yes, it's on it, It's on broadcast. We should have had John Predal on again this week.
3: Should I? On every week, bless. On
0: broadcast, it, they have an advert from the Australian Post. Oh, A right. year before they actually showed Galaxy 4. Right. They were. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you've had your fun. I'm going to read this one out. Killer Girls of the ABC. All right, I'll drop the accent there. The latest mumbo jumbo for ABC's scary series Doctor Who are the dravins, brackets, beautiful women whose aim is to kill, and the cuddly-looking chumbly, bollard-like mushroom thing on the left. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like the fact it needs uh, to make clear, then, it, then <laughs> yes. the four actresses' names. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: it's like the, the, the famous photograph of the explorer and the penguin. Yes. <laughs> and it says, <laughs> I don't know, Ernest Shackleton, Right. <laughs> Fantastic. Well,
0: there you go. The ladies mumbo-jumbo. They weren't a year in advance without having seen it. They weren't far wrong, were they?
3: Yeah. So dare I say that the change in uh, the change in the sex of the villain uh, by Verity Lambert, perhaps she didn't have the uh, <laughs> integrity of the storytelling at heart and might have eyed a potential publicity angle.
0: Yeah. Dare I well, say yeah. it. It's interesting that she's still thinking like that right at, um, you know, as she had one foot out the door. But maybe she again. She learned the space museum when she tried to have a photo call with all the gorgeous <laughs> <laughs> male, <laughs> male hunks <laughs> who played the Xerons, and all the new, newspapers looked the other way. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs>
3: yeah. So there we go. That's a that's a bit of a, a of the background, and um, definitely a production which falls between two eras. Hmm. Definitely. We'll probably end up messing up the running order and bounce about a little bit, but I just want to talk about some received wisdom and, and what people say Galaxy 4 is about. If you take the original concept by William M's, the the hook here wasn't that, that ugly can be good. Because the, they wouldn't have played up to the um, pleasing physical qualities of the male dravins.
2: I've,
0: I've
3: given this a lot of thought.
0: Yes, go on. Mm. Isn't the hook
3: that you've got two spaceships on an abandoned planet and only one of them can make it off sort of thing? Which one will it be?
0: Isn't that what he's writing about? Yeah. I think you're right that at its heart it should have the the moral dilemma of two warring races and only one can get off the planet that should be where the tension comes from it should be a very very tense story i wouldn't like to say th- i mean that's what the story is to the extent that there's any kind of theme to it you're quite right fandom i think we all grew up being told this is the one where <laughs> this is the uh, beauties in the eye of the beholder don't judge by appearances story where we're told that it's essential to the point of the story that the beautiful Dravins turn out to be ugly on the inside and the ugly rills are creatures of beauty on the inside. As you quite rightly point out, if you know the background of the story, we know that that can't be what it is because that was never William Mems' intention. But also, you don't have to watch it for more than a few minutes before it becomes apparent that that isn't the case. We're Everybody is very suspicious of the Dravins from the very beginning, from the very beginning. Apart from the very beginning, where where Stephen
3: sees them and says, <laughs> "What a lovely
0: surprise!" But after that, Stephen and Vicky and the Doctor have taken it in terms tag team to, to be sceptical <laughs> yes. and, crit- and 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 undercut <laughs> everything the Dravins say. The Dravins don't make any attempt to come across as appealing or. That's not true. That's not
3: true. Margaret's first words are along the lines of Hello, would you like to take a seat? She then turns into a ranting, drooling fascist. From her second sentence. (laughs) From her second line. Yeah. So,
0: (laughs) I think you would have to be as easily swayed as Stephen is by (laughs) the (laughs) sight of a a pretty face and long-blown locks and, and strange dotted eyebrows. And 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 turn your brain off as soon as they started talking to, to still think that that's what the story is about. But the flip side of that is it doesn't have to be Beauty and the Beast. Mm. I think the, the the surprise that the rills are not as monstrous as they appear to be is still the main point of the story, regardless of whether the Dravens mm. are beautiful. It's yeah. actually humans versus monsters. Correct. Yes. It's kind of made explicit in the fourth episode. The real state, their belief that the Dravins only hate them because they hate everything that is unfamiliar and different, mm. which could be a great moral, if mm. that if that was really threaded throughout the story in a more in a clearer, stronger way, mm. then that would be a very a very strong, very 60s thing to be saying. Uh, to what extent do you think does making the Dravins very conventionally attractive people rather than just representatives of humanity a human-like species Do you, what does that actually undermine that it does well, i think it? the real sto- message of story is it just confuses I it does. things doesn't
3: it it does confuse things and it's it's very strange phenomenon that's happened with this story because it is so as you've said it's so richly woven into the law of the <laughs> show that this is about uh, physical beauty versus inner beauty that it's so immediately apparent when you watch it that it isn't about that,
0: it can't be about that, that you wonder if anyone who's written about it has watched the bloody thing I can only assume it's another one of those bits of lore that grew up in the 70s and on into the 80s mm. uh, in that gap when pe- n- nobody could hear it and then yeah. there was no novel I mean the novel was mid to late 80s wasn't it, but I think yes. it was long. It was late enough for this. these ideas to have be been set in stone people had read precease of the storyline written by fans who could remember it but they hadn't seen the script the script wasn't published until the 90s and it was only published in the 90s because the soundtrack was still believed not to exist it's your mate Bentham again isn't it that's his old tricks <laughs> I'm not gonna well we can ask Jan about that or maybe not <laughs> so there we go that's our hot take all our, yeah. all the <laughs> fandom has been wrong for all of time and we're here to put you right <laughs> Is there anything to say about the characterisation
3: in this ongoing review of the early years of the show?
0: Not a lot. It's a bit of a, a bit of a non-entity as far as characterization is concerned, isn't it? It doesn't add anything to our knowledge of these characters, and it, I mean, depending on the point of view, it barely even does justice to what we already know, so I yeah. wouldn't have said so. But
3: there's nothing about the Doctor in this, is there? Apart from his wild and inaccurate guesswork. <laughs> to bring some absolutely contrived mysteries to the show which are debunked within seconds Uh, again it's not really a character thing for the doctor because it makes him look like a moron but you know they land and he said this is obviously a planet completely bereft of life can it be can it be that a planet so conducive to life somehow doesn't have any and then that's blown out the water within three seconds
0: as the Chumbly feels its way around the, the ship. Absolutely. So, Did you know, that's typical of a, a lot of the dialogue in this story. A, a lot of it. Yeah, indeed. Ca- and coming back to the fact that all the characters are sceptical of the Dravins from very early on. Well, he's not content to have got that so utterly
3: wrong, that within seconds he does it again. <laughs> he says, well, the Chumbly is obviously blind. Because it's feeling its way around the ship. So you're thinking, ah, okay, so th- there isn't life. Maybe there's a robot life on this planet. But it, but it's utterly blind. Which isn't touched on at all in the rest of the, the show. I think there's a question of whether they can see in one direction. But um, that's abandoned. So that's another slapdash bit of guesswork by by the Doctor. I think it's uh, probably a William M's. Problem that <laughs> they're putting in these contrived mysteries, which last about five seconds.
0: Yeah, it's almost like having having um, settled on his storyline and worked it up, and now he's uh, painting in the detail over the skeleton that he's committed to. He's as he's putting dialogue into the into the mouths of these characters. They're coming up with better ideas than he's already than he has, <laughs> and so <but> he's stuck <laughs> yeah. with it. <laughs> What what do you do? They've either got to say something that's not true but is interesting. Or guess the truth immediately, which would be even worse. He's just kinda of lumbered. Yeah. The other the only other
3: thing I saw about the doctor is as well as Stephen getting in on the act with the lovely ladies, uh the doctor gets an eyeful, doesn't he? Which thankfully we can see in uh in that quarter of episode one that exists but where he's describing the female form to Marga he does he does eye up and down and have a little smile to
0: himself doesn't he <laughs> dirty old lech he's yeah, regretting not staying with the camera so
3: we've talked about uh, Peter Purvis and his perception of, of being given Barbara's lines but Stephen himself he's quite a suspicious chap isn't he he's also piling in on the Dravins from five seconds after meeting them but also he doesn't trust the Rills so I thought that was fair enough that not only was he questioning the Dravins motives but later yeah. on he does question the Rills I think well.
0: that's in character Stephen he is yeah. basically when he's not delighted that he's found some Blackberries for breakfast he's, his basic default mode is to just shout cynicism at people and then Vicky Well, not really. I mean she does she gets for about ten seconds she gets an action scene where she she actually does overpower driving, which is maybe maybe Peter Purvis is watching from the other side of the studio and was jealous of that bit. She also outwits a
3: chumbly. Hmm, Yep. But really she doesn't have a lot to do or say in this either, does she?
0: Apart from one one massive scream, she's mostly the good natured Vicky we've grown to know and love
3: sense of fun coming through? Mm, yep. I would have liked to have seen the lines that, Vicky, uh, that Maureen O'Brien was unhappy with. Hmm. Twice, of course, now that we've heard tale of her being unhappy with the dialogue supplied for Vicky and complaining about it at the rehearsal stage, which, of course, gave John Wiles the idea to sack her.
0: <laughs> yeah, not, not to do... Well, he had two options. Do something about it. <laughs> which <laughs> would please Morning <laughs> Brown and make a better program for the millions of viewers Yeah, or get her out of the way.
3: Yeah, because she was contracted for many more episodes than she eventually uh, appeared in, I believe. But, uh, well,
0: sector. we'll come back to that.
3: Yeah. The most interesting aspect in, in all of the characters for me was the relationship of the the drones, the clones, to Marga. And I think that became... I think that's the interest of the writer here. It is. That's the most interesting stuff, isn't it?
0: It is, and again, it, it's all under the surface. Mm. That's to the extent that, that he has any particular investment in this story. That's where it is, and it would have been the case where they were all male or all female. Yeah. It's slightly unfortunate that change to all female puts you in that sort of um, two run is worm that turned world where, <laughs> and it's only just a one one throwaway line. Oh yes, we. Men oh yes we we have those on our planet, but they're, <laughs> they're of no use whatsoever it's um I can't even work it if that's thrown in there as a joke or something sinister it's difficult to say, but really, whether or not that them all being the same sex would have played in if they're if they were all men because of course sorry i'm not- I'm skirting around your point and I will come back to it, but it it just strikes me that a race if we see four alien aggressors on a planet in doctor who and they're all men we don't assume that they're from a, a, a species that only comprises men we just assume yes. they are <laughs> lesser the women at home because that's what television was like back then yeah whereas there has to be a, a reason why there's four women so um you know it's it's not particularly progressive is it as we've already established it's a publicity stunt so it's not remotely progressive <laughs> yeah. so but putting that aside yes the Class hierarchy. Is it a story about class? Is it a story about eugenics? What is it a story about? They talk about it quite a lot. There's a lot of dialogue on that point, but none of it really gets to the heart. It seems to go beyond the science fiction superficial layer and tell us what what Williamens might be worried about. Is this something he worries about happening to us in the future, or? Is it a sort of Aldous Huxley Brave New World scenario where people mm. are born into different s- social strata and there is no movement up and down? Is it a social satire? It's just not clear. He denied being influenced by
3: that, didn't he? When it was put to him in later years. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. there you are then. So you're not the first person to... What a use. hack.
0: <laughs> <laughs> For all that I just moaned that he could have done more with it, what he does do with it is entertaining and it's yeah. a very dialogue heavy quite prosaic story but some of the world building is okay some of them what threaten to become yeah. moral conundra that pop up in these discussions are okay it's just um, slightly frustrating that it's just there as window dressing rather than being tied into the themes of the story itself the chumblies Paul. Mm, yes again it's a real mixture of good and bad, isn't it? They look quite fun. They've got some interesting gimmicks. The sound effects work is excellent, as it is yes. in all sixties. Who, if you turn the vision off, which effectively <laughs> is um, the state we're in, it's like watching the web planet. It's almost entirely audio, audio rather than. But it's another one of those attempts to um, come up with the new dialects that they just can't get over all the way through the sixties, from the mechanoids to the crotons to the. Quarks, but if that's how that if that's how these things start off, it doesn't go that way in the story. They have a more useful function, don't they? Yeah. I think calling them yeah. chumblies I can't work it again if that's charming, <laughs> or the most ham fisted piece of writing ever oh uh, it's it's part
3: of my list of grievances that immediately Vicky calls them chumblies, because they have a sort of chumbly movement. Yes. Now This chumbly is supposed to be a bit of a portmanteau word of chum and friendly or whatever it is. Bumbly. But it completely undermines any tension that you get from them. So you've got Vicky <laughs> calling them these lovely cuddly looking creatures and then within a couple of minutes she's outside and she's screaming Doctor, a chumbly! It, it's like saying, Doctor, a, a, a lovely jovial fellow is... Threatening me, and it completely
0: undercuts it's Baffling, any baffling. threat, doesn't it? It's it's as though somebody has decided they've come up with the name Chumbly, and decided we're sticking with that against all <laughs> no matter what happens. yes yeah. <laughs> for no, they, I don't know. Maybe William M's has some dirt on the director general, but he's he's uh, he's allowed to stick with the name Chumbly, and people are going through the script trying to find ways of explaining this away. Yeah. But everybody, from the doctor to the Reels themselves and the Dravins, goes along with Vicky's made-up word. <laughs> without <laughs> no. uh, but every time she mentions it to somebody new, they say Chumbly. You call them the creatures. You call Chumblys. We we get stuck with for four episodes. It's so baffling. They, sh- they should have been called. Bastardrons or something. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm not a science fiction writer like yourself, Paul, so I I'm not I'm not strong on the, the creative one. side. That's a good one. Bastardrons.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, I um Yeah. Can I file that away for later? Uh not a lot to say about the rills. Very earnest chaps, aren't they? Again it's uh there's occasional science fiction ideas in here. I mean them living in their own environment, which is toxic hmm. It's not particularly original, but it's quite a nice low-level science fiction idea. It's more interesting than the idea that ugly doesn't automatically equal evil. The fact that they don't breathe oxygen and the fact that they don't speak English and have to um, absorb the language from Vicky's head are both quite interesting ideas. And again, I really would have thought my instinct would be that Donald Tosh added these little details in.
3: doesn't speak much for the doctor's science again, does it? That he can't recognise the smell of ammonia no very self-aware the rills aren't they when i go to an alien planet and i see that they're of a different life form i don't think i'd be obsessed with i don't think my physical form will be very pleasing to you i mean of course my physical form would be pleasing to them i mean look at me but (laughs) um i don't think i'd be very worried about that i don't think that'd be the first thing on my mind maybe they've had an experience with with
0: humankind before they're all a bit slutty but fast aren't they Uh, (laughs) <laughs> My name is not important. You would not like our... Pleb- <laughs> yeah. Did you enjoy it,
1: Paul? It,
0: it passed the time. It. Um. I, I don't know what I would have thought if I hadn't actually been... I, w- I was thinking more deeply about it than... Well, A, than it deserved, and B, than I would have done if I'd just been watching it <laughs> for pleasure, because I knew I was going to be talking about it. I think I got more pleasure out of trying to work out what it was trying to say, what William Memes was thinking, than I did from just in... But not, that's not to say that I disliked it. I've seen nothing made me grind my teeth particularly. So really, I, I would I would put it in there fairly low down in the pantheon of, of First Doctor stories, but by no means at the bottom
3: yeah that's one of the interesting things about it. and i hope the listeners will recognize that we've been very positive about the doctor who that we've seen it helps that we've seen excellent doctor who but the, the good thing about bad doctor who inverted commas bad doctor who is that it's interesting as to why it misfires and therefore it always is there is pleasure to be gained from understanding it i know you did a podcast about the twin dilemma the other day and well i i don't Rate the Twin Dilemma as low as others do. It's still an interesting watch because you're wondering, well, why quite doesn't it work? So
0: yeah, yeah. I I I mean you know that's why I'm a Doctor Who fan. There's something about the programme that it has to go disastrously off the rails before I Hmm. find it unwatchable, and I'd rather watch a you know a an unsuccessful Doctor Who story than an unsuccessful Star Trek. I like Star Trek, but it can go for me it has much wider, wilder ups and downs mm. than than Doctor and I find Doctor's yeah. ups and downs fun and all part of the all part of the ride yeah some
3: big some positives from this I think the uh, the landscape is realized beautifully in Ealing or wherever they were you know the the thirty five mil stuff i think I think that's a successful piece of design i enjoy the music indeed we borrowed a piece of music for the theme of this podcast i thought that that worked very well the i think you mentioned earlier the radiophonic workshop are, are doing extremely well to um you know bring these chumblies to life with their little tweets and chirps and so on i watched this twice i watched the cut down recon that was put out with the aztecs special edition and then i watched the episodic reconstructions the loose canon, full versions if you like and found the latter more enjoyable and the reason i found it more enjoyable in a story that is notoriously accused of treading water is that what little tension the story managed to garner Uh needed that more time to gently build, because when you watch the cut-down recon, it's a bit of a highlights package, and you lose any of that tension that is built up about the time factor and so on and so forth. So enjoyed, it benefited more, oddly, you would think, from having a slightly longer format. Yeah,
0: yeah. the truth is somewhere in the middle there. You're absolutely right that early on, it needs time to build the tension. The pacing is off because in the last episode, he hasn't mm. left himself enough plot, and it really does, that's when yes. it starts to tread waters, that's when I could have done with it, cut down. So, yeah. but yes, on the whole, you're right.
3: It's not one that I feel would particularly benefit from having more of it found, because there are there only three set sets, well, I- excluding the TARDIS, there are only really three sets in the thing, so we've got a pretty good
0: idea yeah. of what it would look like. Yeah. It, we wouldn't learn anything new, it would only benefit from the fact that it's always nice to be able to see the bloody things. But really, it was, it was hampered at script at script stage, or possibly you know, earlier than that, at conception. The only way it could have been any better, I personally think, is if there's some actual twists in the storyline. It's curiously... <laughs> un. It's, druma- it's only got one idea of drama. It, it does try to ratchet up the tension... I think at the storyline stage, it probably looked like it would get quite tense. But for a story which everyone remembers, the one where nothing is what it appears to be, actually, everything is what it appears to be. So any, <laughs> any really kind of <laughs> twist would have been... Because normally I would complain if, if, if they pull the rug out from you in a really contrived way at the end. Aha, you didn't see that. But, but really, that would, <laughs> that's the only way to, to raise this up a level.
3: Yeah. I mean, I suppose if you hadn't called the Chumblies the, the Chumblies, and you'd have called them Bastard yeah, and they were somewhat more menacing... And that the, the Dravins and Marga were utterly charming for twenty of the twenty five minutes. And then the the episode one cliffhanger is you actually see that Marga's having a smoke out the back and she's not all that she appears to be. Yeah. I suppose you'd get twenty five minutes of of yeah. drama and subverting your expectations. Exactly. There. And But uh, I'm not sure there's four it episodes in it.
0: It's not gonna win any awards. That's still hokey. But it is yeah. uh, but it is a surprise. It's a, it's a dramatic. It's a turn, a mm. reveal. There are no reveals, no twists, no nothing. It all just happens. Yes. <laughs> That's its yeah. biggest problem.
3: Before we talk to Jan, I will say that the six-minute clip is wonderful to have, but by God, it's probably the most frustrating absence of moving image when that clip stops because (laughs) it gives you just enough time to get comfortable doesn't it yeah and to forget that it's missing and you really i mean it's a substantial whack of galaxy 4 that exists or 400 dawns that exists there and to me it's the most i mean there is always a frustration where uh, a deep sense of frustration where you know you'd watch episode one of the web of fear and then you can't believe that you can't watch Episode 2, but at least you've got a full 25 minutes there. There's a deep sense of frustration for me when you're watching Episode 1 of this and the delight of having moving images because you think, oh, hang on, did that telesnap just move? Because the camera angle on the driving spaceship just wobbles slightly, <laughs> doesn't it? And then you get into the live action and when that inexplicably and cruelly stops,
0: that hurts. It's got a, it's got a strange... Propensity for delayed gratification, Galaxy Four. Because when Airlock was found and and shown at Mission bleed wiped in 2011, they showed the first five minutes and then stopped it and switched to the underwater minutes. <laughs> so maybe that yeah. was a, maybe that's a tribute to the glory days when we only had those six minutes. Shall we wheel Jan out of his ammonia chamber? And now we're very pleased to welcome our special guest for this episode. We're joined by Jan Vincent Rudsky. Fresh from his appearance, you may have seen him on the Who's Doctor Who Revisited documentary on the Talons of Weng Chiang Blu-ray. Jan was one of the founding members of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society way back in May 1976. And he's had a long-standing association with Doctor Who fandom. I think it's fair to call him an elder statesman. But if he doesn't want to be called an elder statesman, I'm sure he'll <laughs> correct me on that point. <laughs> He's also had various run-ins with the world of missing episodes, and perhaps best known in that context for helping to preserve for us just shy of six minutes of 400 Dawns. So, <laughs> good evening, Jan. Good evening. Now you're you're fortunate enough to have been um, a d- viewer of Doctor Who since uh, what the very start? Yes. So so you're. You'll remember Galaxy 4 from the first time round. Um, uh, first and only time round. <laughs> that is
2: correct, yes. What did you make of it at the time?
0: Um,
2: like most Doctor Who's at the time, it frightened the life out of me. And it was exciting because there were weird aliens and it was on a very strange planet. Nice studio planet. <laughs> and for me, being a great fan of the TARDIS, there was a the whole thing with the TARDIS helping out with the spaceship. Yeah. So I have a very vivid memory of the cable stretching out across the landscape into the police box.
3: (laughs) Is it a blessing or a curse that you can remember it but can't ever revisit it to make sure that your memories are in line? Or would you rather not remember it? Do you you know what I mean?
2: No, it's a a blessing. I mean, I I started uh, recording Doctor Who audibly in the end of the Myth Makers. And because I used to listen to the audio recordings so much, I kept a fairly good visual memory of them. Right. So I won't even watch these reconstructions because I look at them and think, that's not right. (laughs) I couldn't tell you what was right, but I
0: know they're not right. You've known Ian Levine a very long time, and he as well as, um, I think... Did he record the first half of each episode and then wrote copious notes on on the second half?
2: Uh, no, he, I think he d- did an audio recording of the episode and then wrote it all down, transcribed it, um, because he hadn't got enough money to keep to keep tapes. He would have to wipe the tape and reuse it next week, because t- uh, audio tape was very expensive in those days. We're extraordinarily lucky
0: to have so many copies existing yes. aren't we so it, that we it's... can even pick and choose the best ones to
2: yes I mean my, my earliest recording was um, the first and second episodes of the first Dalek story because um, I happened to have access over Christmas to a tape recorder um, and you can hear my dog barking when Susan screams <laughs> in episode one <laughs>
0: yes, it's on a frequency that only they can hear isn't it
2: <laughs> yes and you can hear me um saying, there was someone, when uh, Susan is saying something touched (laughs) her. Age date. I not only remembered Galaxy 4 here and there, but actually, really strong in my memory, is the Junior Points of View episode, where they interviewed the actor who played one of the Chumblies. Uh, So he was in the studio as a Chumbly, if I remember correctly, and they took the top off, and they talked to the guy about being a Chumbly. I mean, your points of view, oh, you had right. some lovely stuff at the time. I there don't was, think I've ever heard of that one before. Uh, there, there was well, another one where uh, they had the Zarbi coming into BBC Reception picking up their lunch boxes to go off and have uh, their lunch break. <laughs> but sadly, of course, they're all white. So moving on into the 70s then, you
0: uh, you become rather more active in Doctor Who fandom, and you're a, Kind of king of Doctor Who fandom by the end of the decade, but how does that how does that get going? Were you uh, Were you a member of the Doctor Who Fan Club? The, I year, was. the first version, yes. Right. Did you Were you happy with how it was run? I assume it wasn't a coup. You didn't out no, Keith no. Miller.
2: What What oh. happened? Was I was in fairly frequent contact with Keith Miller, who ran the Doctor Who Fan Club, and he did say at one point, "Would I like to be a sort of helper?" Uh, To which I said yes. Uh, And it was about that time that I'd gone to university. And we formed the DWAS Society at Westfield College in October 1975. And that was after I'd met Tom Baker at a charity event earlier in October. Um, The Society allowed us to have a, a Doctor Who Appreciation Society. The Union allowed us. Mm. Um, but we didn't get any money. And I'd seen at some point in the World of Horror magazine a classified about a magazine called TARDIS. So I wrote in to the editor of that and ended up writing an article on the TARDIS for issue two. Mm. Then Gordon Blows took over the magazine and I got in contact with him and we discovered that he also was a member of the Doctor Who fan club and had been asked by Keith to be a helper. So Gordon came round to the university and for a few times we met up and Keith had gone very quiet. So we said in, in the sort of process why don't we expand the university society and make it sort of more widespread um, I suppose in a way universal. And so that's how the big dwass came into existence. How many? How many members did you have
3: in your university club?
2: Not that many. I had a note somewhere. I think about twenty-three people turned up to the first meeting. Um, but you
3: weren't—you weren't deemed worthy enough, a subject to receive union funding. No. <laughs> uh, I mean, they tolerated
2: us. They thought we were mad, like everybody else in the world did. But we persevered. What do people think of the programme
0: at that point? Was, to, was Tom Baker universally liked? I don't know about the universe. Um, <laughs>
2: I mean, I, at school, I didn't really say much about Doctor Who because people were sort of rather uh, snooty about it all. Um, yeah. I got more kudos at school when I gave facts and figures because that sort of impressed them that I knew so much. And we certainly got more kudos, a friend and I, when we went onto the set of Curse of We actually got a day off from school to do it um, after this friend and I had been pestering uh, Barry Letts at home on the phone and <laughs> he said, alright, you can come round and see a recording. Um, but on Fantastic. the whole, GoPublic thought it was a mad programme and, you know, you didn't really sort of shout out to people hey, I'm a Doctor Who fan. You kind of sussed people out to see if they were fans and then, yeah, you're away. But it was like a sort of secret almost. So,
0: I mean, do you think when you were at university were people very, was there a lot of nostalgia already for the early days of the programme? Which back then you wouldn't have realised were, some of which were gone forever, but... um...
2: Well, I'd met Keith Miller at one point, he came down to London, and he told me that everything existed except the first episode, because it had been seen (laughs) so many times, it had been worn out and had gone. So, I had it right. in my mind that everything did exist. But the people I met were, of course, my age, so we'd all grown up with Doctor Who from the beginning. Yeah. So there was a little group of us, four or five people, some of whom I'm still friends with, and that's how the sort of society formed from our friendship. Uh, yes, well, well, I was going to ask you
0: when you first became aware that some of uh, that what Keith Miller told you wasn't true, but maybe we'll, we'll come on to that a bit later on. Next thing I've got noted, you're thanked by Terence Dix in the second edition of Making of Doctor Who. What, what advice, what help did you give him?
2: Right, well, when we started the society at the university, the first person we invited round for a talk was Terence Dix. He lived round the corner, and I'd actually been exchanging letters with him about the Time Lords, and who they were, and what uh, standing they were in their society, yeah, which has somewhat changed since. <laughs> <laughs> anyway We uh, went round to his house quite a few times And uh, chatted about various things And he was very helpful And in the process of all that He said at one point Oh, I'm doing a second making of Doctor Who And it's really great I'm going to use the synopses They're in the Radio Times special And I went Oh, no, 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 no They're not very good <laughs> And he said Okay do you want to rewrite them? And I said, yes, please. So I did. Uh, And that's basically why there's a credit. That sounds extraordinarily
0: helpful. (laughs) Now, to return to the, the main topic, making of Doctor Who, is it volume one or volume two is one of the first places that is publicly acknowledged that not every episode was still in existence?
2: I think the first time I really had any idea of what existed was with the documentary. Because we kept okay. badgering for that list of what they found in the archives, and as you, I think you saw in the Blu-ray, there was a list that they gave us of what existed, and didn't.
0: Yeah. Now, was that comprehensive, or was this just the list that Terence Dix had drawn up, of suggested clips for the? For no, this was a, this was done
2: by the documentary production office. Right. Terence Dix had gone to the archives and looked at episodes. So his suggestion for what came before the documentary and never happened did include stuff that he knew existed. Right. So let's go skip back a bit. How
0: did you get involved in the production of the first ever documentary on the subject of Doctor Who?
2: Well, first of all, there was going to be a series of three clip shows over Christmas to bridge the gap between the two halves of that season, hmm. uh, because of... No, I think it was the head of serials wanted a break for some reason. Some, somebody wanted a break, so they wanted to fill it with something to keep the viewers going between the two parts of the season. But that fell through, and so it ended up with Lively Arts and Tony Cash. And so I knew Terence Dix new bus, and he also contacted Jeremy Bentham uh, as a reference department... Yeah, uh, And then basically we all got involved and I mean at one point Steve and I went round and saw Tony Cash and we had a long chat about what could be used and what might not be. And in fact he even at one point said we could be the researchers. But later on he said actually he was very happy what Terence Sticks had come up with so he was getting it. <laughs> Curses <is> foiled again. <laughs> so from there We had quite an ongoing correspondence with Tony Cash about ideas and thoughts and how things fitted in with the history of the programme. And there was a very lovely time when we went round to his office and we actually watched uh, a couple of episodes and that Blue Peter 10th anniversary piece, which was incredibly exciting. fantastic.
3: In the, um, in the Who's Doctor Who revisited thing, they have the notes from the lively arts researcher, a chap called Ben Miller, I think, and he reviewed a number of episodes. And so his comments are quite pithy and cutting about, you know, he, he, he watched the Crusade at 1.5 speed because <laughs> he couldn't be, he thought it was dull. and.
2: Well, that's it, you see. I mean, that was the big problem I had with the documentary because it wasn't mm. actually made for fans. Yeah. And that's why I was quite disappointed by it at the end. Right. Not enough clips. Right.
0: <laughs> and during the process, as, we, as we've established, you finally got to see a list of what did exist and what didn't. Yes. So with Keith Miller having raised your expectations, it must have been a bit of a blow to see the, the harsh reality.
2: Well, I think Philip Hinchcliffe had already said that not everything existed. And I think I remember asking him about Master Plan, because that's my favourite story, and he said, no, that's gone. So there was certainly an inkling before then that not everything existed.
0: But was it obvious to you at the time then that some episodes existed in the BBC's official film and or videotape library, and some only existed in BBC Enterprise's archive? Well, certainly after the
2: documentary, yes. And
0: that it was important that there was recognition of the fact that these needed to be treated treat oh, yeah, as I a mean, whole.
2: Sue Molden was definitely keen to get copies into the archive and also get stuff back from the BFI, who was also had episodes that nobody else did. But Ian Levine often says that when he turned up
0: separately, it was in 1978, the BBC trying to purchase stories was the first time he was aware that that BBC Enterprises had, had a huge number of, of prints that weren't av- available to the BBC archives at large.
2: Yes. I mean, at one point, Graham Williams gave me the phone number of a very high art person in Enterprises with the intention of me ringing up to talk about keeping episodes. And I did ring him up, and his whole attitude was, who are you to tell us what to do with our archive? If we want to wipe it, we'll wipe it. And I try to sort of say, people out there want this product, they'll pay for it. No, not interested. It's a point that's endlessly debated, which is whether or not BBC
0: Enterprises knew that some of these negatives and prints were the only copies existing of these stories.
2: Oh, I'm sure they did, and they didn't care. All they were interested in, can we sell it? If we can't sell it, destroy it. I mean, I actually spoke to somebody when I was at the BBC who worked in Enterprises in their dispatch department. And he told me how he used to cut up film prints of the first Dalek story and just splice them together to make up silly films (laughs) because they were being chucked out.
0: So people were aware of this situation in 77 into 78 and it wasn't until somebody with the authority, i.e. Sue Malden, to make a change, it wasn't until she was able to order Enterprises to change their...
2: I don't think she could order them. I think she had to negotiate. I mean, they're a separate company. They, They could do what they want. I'll give Enterprise one bit of kudos. At some point, I can't remember when, Steve Payne went to Enterprises in Evening Broadway to see about if we could get any episodes from them. And they said, well, we are junking some stuff. They should be down in dispatch. If you, if they're there, you can have them. So he went down oh, wow. and they'd gone a week earlier. So wow. there was about 12 cans of something, I think. No idea what. So
3: you were gifted the two short excess trims of the five minutes plus of 400 dawns. Was that cut out of a master copy of the film and they just disposed of the rest, or...?
2: No, um, what happened was that in January of 77, Tony Cash came round and talked to the University Society, mainly about filming coming up. And during that, he just mentioned that they'd discovered some new stuff, i.e. stuff they didn't know existed, and he said that they would have to make prints of episodes to decide how they're going to make the final episode. And if they had anything left over, he would give it to us. Right. So what they did was, they duplicated the Galaxy 4 part of episode, and cut out the bit they wanted... And they would have just flung the rest out, but they
3: gave it to us. Right, okay. So, th- so they only copied the si- the six minutes that contained the, the bit that they'd eventually elect to have. Well, they
2: copied the bits I had and the bit in the middle of it that they used.
3: Yeah, okay. Fine.
2: Because it, co- it cost money to copy film. So sure. they only would copy the bits they wanted. Sure. With a bit
3: of leeway. Makes sense. No, I was concerned that they'd they'd taken the master copy and just cut it up because it was no longer for sale by Enterprises and then, you know... No, at that
2: point, as far as as I'm aware, the whole episode, the whole story existed. One of the big problems with it was that it was a separate film and a separate soundtrack.
0: Oh, goodness. Uh,
2: So you had to have really professional equipment to look at it. Yeah, I can imagine. So... I didn't get to see the clip for quite a while. <laughs> and how long's quite a while? I don't think probably for a few months. Right. Uh, because it had to be knowing someone at the BBC. It would take uh, Steinbeck to look at the episodes. So,
0: I mean, uh, you know, 16mm film projectors were, were not exactly common or garden. No.
2: At the time anyway. A- actually, our university had a 16mm projector. So we did take all the offcuts we got and watch them, but only mute.
0: Yeah. If they'd had a soundtrack, it would have played it, but that would have needed to be an optical soundtrack. And, yeah. Right. And it would have
2: to be on the film print, and it, yes, it wasn't. Yeah.
0: Well, that's very forward-thinking of,
2: of him <coughs> to give you both <laughs> both sections and enough for you to keep it. Well, they were probably just kept it, together, and they just shoved them in together. Yeah. So,
0: a few minutes later, you finally got to watch it, with the gap in the middle. <laughs> of the bit which actually made it into the documentary, and then it disappeared into your collection. It just got put away. Yeah. What else can you do with it? I have seen it suggested that you did offer it back to the BBC in the 80s.
2: Well, is this tr- it, it, that is true. But what happened was I was at the film library, I was chatting to Sue Malden. I mean, we worked in the same department, so I knew her. And I just mentioned in passing, I have a clip from one of missing stories and she said in passing again we're only really looking for full episodes Uh so the conversation moved on from then Yeah. yeah for
0: the longest time they couldn't see any particular worth in clips or or soundtracks soundtracks without any visuals or vice versa
2: yeah but what was the point i mean what use was it there was no
0: video in those days Oh well, I can I can understand, but I mean, imagine imagine if it had been a censor clip. Imagine if the censor clips had come back from Australia and been rejected because of that that viewpoint, and then later on a missing episode turned up with those precise cuts. Well, I mean, that's what happened with Underwater Menace. So, I, of course, I can understand that that was a, would have been seen as a bit of a long shot. But yes, I mean, an archive isn't a jigsaw factory, is it? No, you can't expect them to take in all sorts of odds and sods just on the off chance that. In some distant future, they may be... It's not Bagpus's shop window.
3: No. In a way, Sue Molden, without the opportunity to exploit the the whole episodes that she has, it speaks to her uh, efforts, really, because she was doing it purely for posterity.
2: Oh, yeah. Assuming that they couldn't cash in on them, and they, they wouldn't repeat them. No, I mean, you know, I remember her telling me that they have got Web of Fear Part 1, and she was quite excited about that. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
3: But it would just sit there in the in the archive and everyone would know a little bit feel a little bit better knowing that it's there. Yes. Um
1: yeah.
0: So to finish the story of this extended clip, it finally got shown to the public in nineteen ninety seven in the Missing Years documentary.
2: The restoration team were talking about a video release and so I said, Well, let's let's get it transferred properly. And of course that being at the BBC they could very easily.
0: So to return to our chronology, it's 1978 that you actually get a job at the BBC.
2: Yeah, in the videotape department. Yes,
0: and this is um, completely unconnected (coughs) to your involvement in the documentary, to your presidentship of the Appreciation Society. This was a professional position.
2: Yes, and in fact I didn't tell anybody for quite a long time that I was at the BBC. (laughs) Partly because I'd be badgered to let people in to watch episodes being recorded oh, right. and hmm. partly because people would start making assumptions about what i could do provide and all the rest of it hmm. so it was much better just to keep mum yeah we're just on a
3: <laughs> at home we're just on a i claudius watch and so when I was preparing for this podcast, I was reading that uh, um, people thought iClaudius was missing because of the electronic filing system.
2: Oh, yes. Well, that, that, was, that was great because me being me, i put into the system is i-commerce-based Claudius. Now, uh-huh. the poor souls down at the film library who didn't really understand the computer system because they were accustomed to card indexed, would put in I, space, Claudius, and it wouldn't come up.
1: <laughs>
2: or variations. And in fact, yeah. I ended up having to teach everybody at the film library how to use the computer system uh, and how they had to think like a computer to and use punctuation. check things. Yeah. The, the rule was it was, um, I had to follow how it was in the Radio Times, which I cheated by <laughs> making Doctor Who, D-O-C-T-O-R, Um, But, of course, we came a cropper when we got to not the birth of not the nine o'clock news and other things like that. (laughs) And, in fact, there was a problem with the whole system when it first started, and it missed off the first letter on the scheduling sheet. So there were programmes called Lay of the Month, Lay of the Week.
0: (laughs) But you've got a foot in both camps here because you're still working at the uh, Appreciation Society, and you're involved with their... Second convention in 1978. I get the impression you want to try and uh, step things up a bit from the first year. You decide, it's decided to try and get hold of a, an episode or a story to show.
2: Well, I think in the first year, we wanted to show an episode or something, but hit the brick wall that there were all these hurdles you had to jump. And it just wasn't possible. So we ended up showing the BFI clip from the second Dalek story, which you could hire at the time. And what had changed by 1978? Well, we decided we wanted to show an episode or a story for the Panopticon, the second convention. So Keith started contacting BBC Enterprises to see if we could get an episode or a story. And they were to say the least, very unhelpful. (laughs) They Put all sorts of hurdles in front of us. They said that every actor in the episode would have to be contacted to get their permission. If the actor was dead, then we'd have to get permission from the estate, and we did that. They you did it. Wow. Okay. Said the scriptwriter would have to get permission. We got that. They also said that the Equity and musicians' unions would have to agree to this. And we got that. Then they started giving all sorts of other, really pathetic excuses, like, "Oh, the film prints are on 35 mil. That's a really awful gauge. Uh, it's, it's just not worth showing. They're in black and white. The technicians <laughs> won't um, touch black and white. It, it's, it's 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 you know beyond the pale." And they were giving all these stupid excuses to Keith and Keith who was quite a young lad at the time, didn't know anything about photography, was coming to us saying, they said this and we'd say, rubbish go back (laughs) so it got to the point where Steve and I or with Keith probably said, okay, we'll go and see the guy at the enterprises and talk to him direct which we did and I don't remember much of the conversation, uh, but one bit I do remember is where we said, "Look, we have got the permission from Equity and the Musicians' Union," and he looked at us and said, "Well, who are they? Are who are they to tell us what we can sell you?" Quite indignantly, and then he kind of tried to get rid of us, ushered us out, and rather throwaway said something along the lines of, "Well, the only person who could." give permission for these is some person who I can't remember who, a bigwig at the BBC, somebody on the sixth floor, really important, and got rid of us. So we went down the road to a telephone box and Steve rang him up and he answered and Steve made an appointment to see him that afternoon. Uh, Not me because I was far too shy to go and do such a thing. (laughs) So, Steve went along, met this bigwig, told him that he wanted to show an episode to Doctor Who fans, it wasn't a fee-paying audience for the episodes, it was part of a bigger thing, appreciating the programme. The bloke picked up the phone, rang the Enterprise gentleman, instructed him that he would sell us the episode, and that... The episode and the story should not be destroyed and get on with it and that's how we ended up first episode to show but that kind of broke a wall down they we established we could do it so we then for the next convention thought well what are we going to go for yeah of course because we had to contact everybody we went for a story that hadn't got many people in it. Ah, right. Which was Galaxy 4. Right. And that then when we said we want Galaxy 4, that's when we were told, no, it's wiped. So I think that's when we turned around and went for Edge of Destruction bring a disaster instead.
0: Even fewer people to worry about.
2: Yes. I mean, what I, what I found out much later on from somebody who worked at Enterprises was that their attitude was... If you don't make at least, I think it was ten thousand pounds on the sale, don't bother with it. And we weren't paying anything like that. I think it was maybe three hundred pounds or something. Basically, actually, that's that's what the guy said. I just remembered uh, the six form guy. He said, charge them cost, the cost to make the print.
0: <laughs> You've got jobs worths on the ground and people. Are- for once, people upstairs who've actually got a more down-to-earth attitude.
2: Yeah. Because he appreciated that the, there was no harm in watching the epi- the episodes, um, and it was a an audience who were there and wanted to see it.
3: The attitude of Enterprises sounds like what John Peddle was talking about in our previous episode, that this £10,000 figure might be what they... Charged for the sale of a print to Australia and a couple of other countries. Could well because be because they had to they had to pay off the um, the equity fee, and it was based on units of ten thousand pounds. So that sort of makes sense potentially.
2: Yeah, I mean we we bypassed everything, and and, yeah. and got all the agreements which normally they'd have to pay someone to go and get yeah. them. We really sort of scuppered them in a way because they thought by putting all these hurdles in our way we would go away. And we didn't. You showed them.
3: Yeah. Horrible
0: bureaucratic types by the sound of it. So your your other major contribution to um, to the world of Doctor Who Missing Episodes is something I don't feel you often get enough credit for. But we're all familiar with these little tantalising off-air clips of 60s Doctor Who, which were shot by some enterprising Australian fan. But you brought them to wider attention. Uh, do,
2: can you remember... When this was, and how, how you found out about them? Yes, it wasn't actually my intention to bring to either attention, um, but it happened. That, that, was, <laughs> that was interesting. But yeah, OK, so... I'm saying
0: this with 40 years of hindsight, of course.
2: Well, what happened was, somewhere around the end of 77, early 78, I got a letter from a fan in Australia saying that he had 8mm film clips of I presume he just said... I think he said black and white episodes. So he'd narrowed it down to Hartnell Troughton, Um and said that he was willing to exchange this film for a copy of the Radio Times 10th anniversary special. Well, I'd been fairly enterprising and had a, <laughs> few, had a few copies. And, and although, quite honestly, it seemed more likely to be a con, I thought what the hell? I'll send a copy of the anniversary special and see what happens. So I I duly posted it and more or less forgot about it because I didn't really think anything was going to happen. I thought it was someone just trying to get the special. And I think about January 78 this little film can turned up, probably about 200 feet I suppose, and putting it on my 8 mil projector, yes. Old episodes of fantastic stuff. Yeah. Uh, but of course, this was pre-video age, uh, home video. So there wasn't much you could do with it. So it sort of got put on the shelf because you didn't want to watch it too much because you'd ruin the film. You know, once you've scratched it, you've scratched it. Hmm. And I suppose when home video started... To probably more the early 80s and the late 70s, I projected it onto a screen and used a video camera. So I had a copy on VHS, I think. And then somehow, and I've never found out how, somebody made a copy of it. And it went out there. And it happens a lot, doesn't it? Yes. It's very sad because obviously it was somebody I trusted and they just went ahead and I didn't know anything about it for probably quite a few years and I think somebody told me there were these 8mm clips and I just assumed it was the guy in Australia had his own copy and had given them out so I didn't really think any more of it it was out and about and talking to the restoration team I said, well, look, I've got the film, or a film anyway, you can make a copy of it. So, again, they did a proper copy and used it in whatever they did a copy for. Then I found out, at some point, that I had the only copy. I didn't know that. Right. So, then I realised that, actually, that film, print, was my copyright." And I did get a little bit miffed that it was used willy-nilly and I never got a credit. Never a thanks ah. to or anything. And that actually mm. irritated me more than anything else. And I think it was used in the Underwater Menace DVD release, I think. I'm not sure. But anyway.
0: Ah, oh, yes, yes, it was, yeah. It's yeah. um final moments.
2: And I contacted BBC Video and said, oh, you've got this... These clips of my vid- my film, uh, you know I held the copyright? To which they turned around and said, no you don't. BBC, so there. And I asked for a complimentary copy and I did get one. But further investigating I discovered that since the film print is mine, the film print is my copyright, but what's on it is the BBC. So it's a shared copyright. So I haven't made a fuss, but quite honestly, I'd quite like to (laughs) and just say, just give me a credit and maybe a complimentary copy. I mean, I don't want money or anything, but, you know, I've looked after this stuff for 30, 40 years. And it'd be nice to sort of have a little wave. But uh, yeah, so anyway, that's
0: how it appeared. These clips are fascinating. I mean, it's, often, it's been pointed out that a lot of them, even though they're very brief, you can tell that they're very telling moments. Almost, and it's been suggested that the person recorded them must have known what was coming up, so p- perhaps they were repeats.
2: Well, they are very interesting because there's one bit which is repeated. And I've thought, well, how have you repeated this bit of a ah. scene? Uh, so I don't know how they were filmed. I mean, I haven't been in contact back with him. But they always look to me that they weren't off air particularly, and if they were, really? they were on two showings or something, which is really weird. Hmm.
0: But I mean, when you first saw them, I mean, presumably it was exciting to see. Let this highlights reel of the best of Doctor Who. After you know, after oh, totally, and, and there, and there were
2: Tardis scenes. Yay! Um, seventh, seventh heaven. Yeah. <laughs> As you may know, I I really like the Tardis.
3: And there's that, that really crucial stuff from the uh, fourth episode of Tenth Planet. Well, absolutely, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely, uh, and early power. Uh, that's an power amazing one. Collection. I mean, you, you edit, you can edit all that together, and we've got several minutes of the most important yeah. yes changeover in the history of the programme.
2: One of the one so, of the best regenerations.
0: Yeah. Well, let's raise a glass to him, <laughs> wherever he is. And we'll we'll give you your due credit, Jan, and hopefully the people who, who hear this. I mean we will. there's some I said at the beginning that you don't receive enough recognition of this, and I didn't realise why why that was the case. So Okay, well so just come back to come back to our you know, our headline topic, Galaxy Four. Um for a long time we had a couple of minutes of it, then we had six minutes, and then we got a whole other twenty-five. In two thousand eleven it was revealed that um, episode three airlock had been discovered in the collection of retired TVS engineer Terry Burnett. It was revealed to the um, to a small room full of people at uh, Missing Believed wiped at the BFI.
2: Not so small.
0: Uh, <laughs> a medium-sized room, and uh, and thence the wider world. I assume you were there.
2: I was actually, yes.
0: Yes. How did it feel seeing airlock again after? However, many years it was. <laughs> I can't do the maths.
2: After a long time, yes. Oh, well, it's absolutely lovely. I, I mean, I knew what it looked like because I'd seen set photos. So I knew what to expect. I was surprised that the rill had at, uh, appeared so early. Oh, right. I'd completely forgotten that. Ah, brilliant monsters and the whole idea that they lived in a different atmosphere. Yeah. But what particularly stunned me and showed how important the visual medium is, what particularly amazed me was Marga's speech to the camera mm. which was so powerful and was so much better than the audio recording mm. uh, and yeah, I think absolutely. that stole
3: the episode We keep hearing this, don't we about, uh, or we keep witnessing this when fortunately episodes are returned we, we saw this with, with Airlock, we saw it with Underwater Menace, with some of Troughton's tomfoolery and then Enemy of the World Episode 1, who knew?
0: Yes, exactly. And, and, yeah, I mean, even these two episodes were full of so many unexpected joys that they couldn't decide which one to show first. We were we were all frustrated that they only showed five minutes of Galaxy 4 that first year and then switched to Underwater Menace on the grounds that it was considered to be the, the bigger revelation of the two.
2: Well, I think the Trout one was more interesting in as much as it was now the earliest full episode of him. Hmm. And... It was nice to see him in his early stages, when his character really hadn't quite calmed down yet. Mm. I think one of the lovely things about Enemy of the World was where you could see Jamie and the Doctor's interactions nudging each other, again, something you don't get from the audio. Mm. And also, finally, to see that kitchen episode put in place and realize it wasn't a really awful story.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Now, if, if I was... One thing that day at um, Miss and Bleed Wiped in 2011 told me, if I'd ever doubted it, was that not to be sniffy about any episode of Doctor Who turning up, even the most... Because neither of them would have been anywhere near the top of most fans' wish list, I, probably. No, I don't think so. Not, particularly not people who weren't there at the time and hadn't seen them. I mean, you probably had fonder memories of Galaxy 4 than most of the fans with the, of the next generation. But they were both... Full of unexpected delights. And I do remember sort of a, a few um, good-natured groans when, um, when the Underwater Menace appeared on the screen <laughs> because we, Dick Fiddy was rather coy, coy about what we were going to see.
2: I think it was particularly interesting because the existing episode of Underwater Menace had Zaroth doing his over-the-top Nothing in the World Can Stop Me Now. And it just seemed like really ham overacting. And then when you see the previous episode, you see him going mad, and suddenly that next episode gets put in context, just like the episode of Enemy of the World. I mean, I never... I I always wondered afterwards, seen as again, what the casual viewer who hadn't seen the previous episode back in the 60s must have thought of the episodes when they turned over. You know, what is going on? Who is this madman (laughs) running around
3: yeah and I, will, I will say and uh, you know I've said it in previous episodes that despite any problems that you've had that we have access now to some unique momentous clips lots of them plus this six minutes of of 400 dawns thanks to your your efforts in in preserving them so thank you from us anyway
0: Thank you so much. I uh, I didn't realise that we were going to be able to help redress the balance in reminding the world, not even reminding the world, informing the world about those affairs and the rest of your fascinating story. But um, well, I said maybe not the world, maybe just a few hundred people.
2: No, it's going out to the universe now, but well, it will be. We're getting there. <laughs> <laughs>
3: And now we're on to the missing episodes aspect. We discussed earlier whether <laughs> or how much benefit there would be uh, in having this found and that we feel that of all the missing stories, it's it's one of those that doesn't wouldn't benefit too much from, from being found, but it would be a welcome return nonetheless. Paul, should we talk about chances of it being found?
0: Yeah. I mean, we've been, I don't know open-mindedly optimistic in some of our previous episodes about chances they are continuing to deteriorate unfortunately here sales of the series abroad are continuing to decline uh, with series three we're now down to just six countries and pretty much that's going to be the same with just a few minor exceptions all the way through to the smugglers i won't list the exceptions here but there there are a couple of stories that didn't get sold at all and one or two um, extra sales for one or two of the stories from back catalogue, but basically for the whole of series three and into four, six countries, the same six countries bought it,
3: and that's down from what twenty for Marco Polo. Oh yeah,
0: way back at the beginning. Yeah, it's um it's not a massive decline from the Time Meddler, but no. um, we've still we've lost a few. I think we've lost like, four countries who've dropped it, um, including Ethiopia. But, I mean, what we're left with are some of the old stalwarts, Australia, New mm. Zealand, Singapore, yeah. um, Zambia, plus Barbados and um, Sierra Leone.
3: Uh, how does the best science guess that this was these six countries were serviced by film prints?
0: Well, we know that there were a minimum of four prints, but there might have been five. Um, oh. Australia and Sierra Leone had their own, New Zealand sent theirs onto Singapore and it's possible that Barbados sent theirs onto Zambia but that is just a hypothesis that, right. um, that our good friend John Preddle has put forward so it's either 4 or 5 right it was um, still being offered for sale in 1974 we know that from paperwork and hmm. the prints and negatives Survived even longer than that; they still existed in November 1976, and we know that because, as we mentioned in the preparation of the Who's Doctor Who documentary, they they were annotated. And as again, as we've heard, by March 1978, they didn't exist anymore. So, yeah. So that's the the, the brief window during which the BBC's remaining prints of Galaxy Four went up in smoke. Um, as for abroad, Australia returned theirs in 1975 as part of their massive yeah. shipment back, and as which, as we know, is where Airlock came from. And all the others, I'm afraid to say, have pretty much been checked, uh, either in person or via official communications, some them multiple times over the last few decades. Well,
3: there's an interesting, perhaps interesting, recap of the telling of the, the stories of Sierra Leone and Singapore that perhaps we should get into another time.
0: I think so. Yes, I mean, Galaxy 4 had quite an interesting behind-the-scenes history. Some of the stories we're going to go on to later, mm. which were sold to the same places, uh, haven't been so lucky. So, And there is plenty to say about mm. possibilities. So, yeah. um, listeners, come back later. Maybe, maybe make a
3: date for the mythmakers. Quite, and we'll talk about, yeah, the changing narrative of the Sierra Leone film holdings. The Australian print that was returned in 75 we do at least know that one of those four escaped into the wild yep and so it's a not an unreasonable assumption or an unreasonable hope
0: that others escaped into the wild as well our, our, our knowledge of what happened to those returned prints is is still expanding with every now now that when prints have rediscovered people pay more attention <laughs> to the story behind them we're still piecing things together so yes it is entirely possible we don't know how it ended up with we don't know the entire route through which it ended up with terry Burnett. so there's no reason to believe the others might not have but of course it will be missing the segue
3: into mission to the unknown what a shame kill i must kill but i saw an extraordinary comment on forums earlier not to embarrass anyone but somebody was saying it breaks my heart to think that if we ever get some of these back, that they won't have all the sensor clips put back in because they don't exist. I was thinking, what a strange thing to be upset about. <laughs> <laughs>
0: if you, you know, if <laughs> yeah, you, if your heart hadn't been broken by the previous, <laughs> the previous calamities that befell these stories, then I don't know why that would tip you over the edge. I was still—it's like it's like watching the time meddler and then bursting into tears. it's still got twelve seconds missing. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. not to take your emotion away from you, uh, <laughs> mystery commentator. But yeah, bless. Please don't be embarrassed if if <laughs> if you're listening to that. It just seemed a an
3: odd uh, an odd priority to be upset about.
0: Tim hates you, <laughs> and everything you stand for. <laughs>
3: So, we've already mentioned the uh, 2011 Missing Believe wipes, and we like a recovery story here at the Doctor Who Missing Episodes podcast. And it's another. (laughs) It's got quite a nice recovery story in itself, in that at some point, presumably in early 2011, a chap called Ralph Montague, yeah, so head of heritage for the Radio Times,
0: curated a a cinema on his estate at Bewley. Yep, very nice stately home and minor theme park attraction. Yeah. If you're passing that part of the country, do pop in. It's got a, it's got a monorail. It has. If I've got the telling right.
3: He had this home cinema with a 16mm projector, and he was involved with local film enthusiasts. And they were sat in the in the cafe having a cup of tea after an event or whatnot, and, and Terry Burnett is there, a, a, an
0: ex-TV engineer. Yep, he used to work for TVS down for the best view of the South. <laughs> and
3: he reveals he's got a missing episode of Doctor Who. And Ralph views the prints, and they watch it, and uh, they get in touch with uh, Steve Roberts. And have I got it right in saying that Mr. Burnett bought it at a car boot sale? Back in the early 80s?
0: Yep, somewhere in the Southampton area. We, we, we were spot rotten with the crusade, weren't we, with the line?
3: I know <laughs> I keep saying it, but they've managed to track it back via numerous hands to the point it was disposed of by the TV station. And somewhat frustratingly, although it would be churlish to say, you know, it, it overwhelms the <laughs> the recovery itself, but we know it ended up at a car boot sale. Or well, I should say more correctly, a school fate. But the story doesn't end there, does it, Paul?
0: No. Because, indeed, it transpired he had a second episode of Doctor It did transpire, but it didn't transpire immediately, did it? He he forgot about this, and he forgot hmm. about it all the while that he'd lent, given it to Paul Vinesis, and it had gone off to the BBC,
2: hmm. been f-
0: cleaned and scanned and handed back to him, and it wasn't yeah. until it was back in his hands again, some weeks later, that he said... Do you know? (laughs) I I think I might have. As he opened the can and checked that it was still in there and they hadn't mangled it, he suddenly remembered he had a second (laughs) one that it was now safe to hand over to these people who weren't going to destroy it or steal it. You're not suggesting that the innocence of discovering a second can was contrived (laughs) poorly. I think Terry Burnett, and I don't think I'm alone in this, I think some of the people who were involved in this first hand in this discovery, I think he quite wisely decided to Though he hoped that these people were going to treat his precious artifact with the respect which it deserved, he wanted to wait yeah. and make sure before putting yeah. all his eggs in one basket. And I don't blame him. What do we what do we lose? A couple of weeks. Yeah.
3: You want to know I want to know how he was treated regarding the second episode. Because if the restoration team took turns at, you know taking dumps on his lawn, he might be withholding Episode 4 of The Tenth Planet.
0: <laughs> Allegedly. I can't think why anything would have been different <laughs> with the seventh. <sound laughs> but uh, have you heard any rumours? Is that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. No.
3: <laughs> no, I haven't heard any rumours. side okay. effects. No, it, uh, a, a triumphant return. And I'll tell you what, uh, because I wasn't immersed in fandom in the same way that I. I became a couple of years later i i had just read wiped at the first edition so it was a complete and utter surprise the recovery and i read about it at work on the bbc news and i cheered i hit the roof (laughs) hurrah and in many ways it was a more immediate and pleasing experience than what transpired two years later, Ah. in terms of the surprise, in terms of having a nice thing to, to read while you're having your morning coffee at work. And my colleagues wondered
0: why I was cheering because I don't normally cheer in the workplace, believe it or not. No, I wish I'd known you back then. I've I've never seen you when you had that kind of innocent (laughs) joy. (laughs) You've just been a very sad and bitter man. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Sorry. I was supposed to be a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you obviously think it's, <laughs> <That's what's> obviously <laughs> it's true. true. Thought, oh, dear. Well, we can cut that out. Then.
3: Well, that concludes our review of Galaxy 4. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks again to Jan Vincent Rudski for taking the time to chat with us. Absolutely. Paul, Paul thank you very much. My pleasure and do feel free to look us up on facebook that's doctor who and the podcasters and join our page for discussion and updates on twitter paul is at mr paul morris i am at doctor who podcasters with a d r and hopefully you'll join us next time to talk about mission to the unknown goodbye goodbye